You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Like defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, you know, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Paolo Torca who is an assistant professor of oncology and co-program director of the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program over at Waswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York. Thank you so much, doctor, for being on this episode with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So usually when we're looking for a speaker to be on our podcast, it's usually through a recommendation or someone we've used in the past on, you know, on past programs or through our own research. And when I came across your bio, immediately I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast, which patients listening or anyone listening will find out why shortly. Upon searching for a speaker, it came across your bio and it read the following. Treat every patient like family is my mantra. No two patients are the same and neither should be their treatment plan. When I meet a new patient for the first time, I go over their whole story in detail and analyze every minute detail of their case to ensure that together we come up with the best plan of care, which incorporates not just cutting-edge science, but also individual beliefs and common sense. Hearing that you have cancer is bad enough. My goal is to walk the difficult and often confusing road with my patients and their families and do everything I can to make the journey easier. And then you go into your research, you know, which focuses on that being lymphoproliferative cancers such as lymphoma and myeloma. And then your bio ends with, I strive every day to improve the lives of people suffering from lymphoma and myeloma and hope to see an end to this scourge in my lifetime. Now reading that, I automatically got the feeling that you listen, that you're not a doctor that simply implements the best treatment plan, but involves the patients and their thoughts about or reactions to their treatment. And many times when we read bios, it contains very impressive information, as expected for a specialist. However, yours included a lot of qualitative information about your approach. How important is effective communication and shared decision-making when treating your patients? Thank you for these kind words, Alicia. All that is written is absolutely true, and I try to implement that in my practice every day. You know, we spend all these years reading about cancer and trying to come up with new strategies to treat it. But uh, when there is a person in front of you who comes with the cancer, you have to think beyond just the disease. You have to listen to their story, 
how the cancer is affecting them and not just them you have to listen to how it's affecting their family and how would they like to approach so that you know they do want to be cured but also not affect their life and their family um, to a great extent and that's my goal is not just to give them the best outcomes but also do it in a in the least harmful way basically and the best possible treatment for them may not be the best possible treatment for somebody else because you're taking into consideration all of their needs and wants and their quality of life and what they think their quality of life is which is very important so you're really tailoring the treatment to the person definitely and this is very important especially in Hodgkin's lymphoma because um, you know especially in the early stage of Hodgkin lymphoma you have a variety of different options all of them give you very great outcomes however some options include just chemotherapy some include chemotherapy and radiotherapy and you really have to sit down and discuss with the patient about what is their preference and really lay out the pros and cons of each approach and you actually have two distinct populations. A lot of times for Hodgkin lymphoma, you'll have young adults getting this diagnosis, and then you'll have more people over the age of 65. So just the two age ranges, I would think, would be very different in your conversations about treatment. Definitely, and uh, both age groups have their own challenges in treating Hodgkin lymphoma. For example, in the adolescent and young adult age group, you know that they, their bodies will be able to handle more toxicity and more intense therapy. However, you have to be mindful that they will go on to live decades and giving them a cure is important, but also minimizing toxicity is important because long-term data is emerging that Hodgkin lymphoma survivors have increased risk of secondary cancers, especially breast cancer and even lung cancer, infertility, even psychosocial issues, depression and such. So that has to be thought of when the initial plan is being formulated. Also, people are just starting out in their lives and careers at that point. So, you know, for them to kind of take a break and get through about six months of therapy may be really disturbing mentally. They might have to take a break from college and they might be doing very well. So all these have to be discussed with them in advance. On the contrary, in people who are older, data has shown that they do not tolerate the standard regimens well. The lung toxicity is pretty high in older individuals. And so then the challenge in older individuals is to find a more tolerable regimen while not compromising chances of a cure. So totally different age groups with different treatment plans. I'm asking this because of um, because of Alicia, um, <laughs> because she's, and you know what I'm going to say, because um, she's in this generation. But do you find that more young adults dialogue with you more, ask you more questions than the older generation? They're more comfortable talking about treatment and and talking about these other issues that they're facing? The young adults are definitely more internet savvy, so they have done their research before they come to you and they know their options. However, 
it is a fact that they are not very open with their doctors, especially in the initial few visits. They are not going to discuss their sexual health or, you know, other issues with you until much later when a relationship of trust has been established. To give you an example, I just recently saw a lady in my clinic. She's now about 32, but she was diagnosed about 12 years back and she was treated by another physician. And she was in remission for all these years and she's essentially cured. So when she came to me just for a transfer of care, I thought it's going to be a really easy visit. You're doing great, you know, nothing to do. So it appeared like that on the surface, but I just happened to ask her, you know, do you have any other problems? How are you doing in life? And how are your relationships? And she started crying and she said that, you know, all these years I had just been coping with my disease. So it's very important for us as physicians to not just, uh, you know, brush these patients aside when they're in remission and coming for follow-up after years that, oh yeah, you're in remission, what else could you ask for kind of thing? Um, it's a lifelong journey for them once you're a survivor. That's such a great point. And we hear so many people when they say, you know, when they are told that they're in remission, a lot of patients as well as doctors, they describe that as being you're in battle, you know, fighting this illness, and then now you're out of it and you're told, okay, you know, like you said, what else could you ask for? You're in remission, go live your life. But there's so many effects of everything, years of what you've gone through. And kind of finding out how to adjust to this new, like they say, this new normal of, okay, well, I went through that. How do I seamlessly now, you know, navigate my way through this new, this new life that they don't know? Absolutely. So we know that lymphoma directly affects the lymphatic system, and that includes a number of body parts. For those listening who may not be familiar with Hodgkin lymphoma, would you describe or would you define what that is and how someone is diagnosed with this illness? Sure. So Hodgkin lymphoma is a type of lymphoma, which are cancers of the lymphatic system. Now, some people might ask, what is the lymphatic system? So lymphatic system broadly is a part of your immune system. And so even though Hodgkin lymphoma, it's a lymphoma, it can affect various parts of the immune system, like the lymph nodes, you know, the tonsils and adenoids are part of your immune system, the spleen is part of the immune system, broadly even the skin and blood are part of the immune system, though they are not typically affected by Hodgkin lymphoma. The ultimate factory where the, all the immune system is produced is the bone marrow. That's where all the immune cells are made. So that is also one region that can be affected by Hodgkin lymphoma. So typically, Hodgkin lymphoma can be seen in the lymph nodes. And the lymph nodes are like a chain of small marbles that go all the way from kind of the back of your neck, um, actually the back of your ear, down your neck, in the middle of your chest, abdomen, even up to the back of your knee. So typically in Hodgkin lymphoma, patients will people will come complaining that, you know, I've noticed this lump in my neck or I've noticed this lump in my armpit for a few weeks to months and um, they now want, and it's growing in size and they want to get it evaluated. Because this lymphoma also secretes some chemicals, so to say, people can get something called constitutional symptoms, meaning they might be losing weight, they might develop fevers, chills, just general fatigue. And strangely, some people actually have rashes, which they can't explain, or just itching before they're diagnosed with the lymphoma. Rarely, because this lymphoma is in the bone marrow, 
people can come in with low blood counts and be diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma. However, that is a very rare scenario. So the most common presentation is basically lumps in the neck or the armpit along with constitutional symptoms. And treatment-wise, Hodgkin lymphoma has more of a positive prognosis at this point in relation to other types of lymphoma. Yes, that's correct. correct? Um, that's why I like treating Hodgkin lymphoma is because when I look into my <laughs> patient's eyes and I tell them that, you know what, there is a good chance that you're going to get a cure, that's true. So, but before we talk about treatment, you know, whenever you're diagnosed with lymphoma and any cancer for the matter, you have to do something called a staging workup, meaning you have to see how much the lymphoma has affected a person's body. So part of the staging workup are blood tests and some scans. So um, in lymphoma, especially Hodgkin lymphoma, we use something called Ann Arbor staging system, which is basically um, stage one, two, three, four. Stage one is when the lymph nodes are limited to one side of the diaphragm. Basically, you have just one lymph node group. Stage two is when you have more than one lymph node group, but everything is limited to one side of the diaphragm. Stage three is when you have lymph nodes on both sides of the diaphragm. And stage four is when you have involvement of other organs like the bone marrow or the liver or the bones. Um, that's when you have stage four lymphoma. Now, anytime I see a patient and I tell them, before I tell them they're staging, I usually explain that, you know, unlike other cancers, solid tumors like lung cancer and breast cancer where Typically, if you have advanced stage disease, especially stage four disease, it's kind of like the horse is out of the barn and there's no possibility of cure. And we are talking more about just controlling the disease and giving you a longer uh, lifespan. That's not true for lymphomas, especially Hodgkin lymphoma. Even if you have stage three and four disease, the chances are that you are going to get a cure. On an average, about three out of four people with Hodgkin lymphoma do get a prolonged remission. So that's good news. So how do we know what state somebody is in? Uh, we usually do what is recommended is a PET CT scan. The PET scan is basically a functional scan where uh, patients are injected with um, radioactive glucose. Uh, the glucose is basically tagged to a um, radioactive chemical and wherever in the body the glucose goes, the chemical goes with it and then that lights up on the PET scan. So the premise is that because the cancer is growing fast, it needs more sugar to grow. So that's going to light up and the scan will show up that, okay, that's the problem area. And with that, we need to do a diagnostic quality CT scan. And that's, that's uh, the standard of care for Hodgkin lymphoma to have it at diagnosis. Other than the PET scan, we also do a bunch of blood tests because there's something called a scoring system for Hodgkin lymphoma. The scoring system is called International Prognostic Score or IPS score. Basically, there are seven factors, and based on how many factors you have, we can predict what are your chances of getting a good outcome. And, you know, there are different studies which basically um, stratify therapies based on what your score is, meaning if you have a low score, one to three, you might um, it might suffice to give you ABVD, which is the standard chemotherapy combination. In some countries, especially Germany, if you have a higher score, then you would get a more intensified regimen called BACOP. Uh, and there are pros and cons to both approaches. 
so that score really helps us to uh, de determine what kind of treatment uh, the patient should get. So basically, the bottom line is anytime somebody comes to you, we're going to do a bunch of blood tests and we're going to do a PET CT scan and then sit down with the patient to decide what the final treatment regimen is going to be. So now, talking about treatment, typically Hodgkin lymphoma is divided into three buckets. The first one is a limited stage or favorable, limited stage unfavorable, and advanced stage disease. So limited stage, basically self-explanatory. If you have limited stage disease, um, it means that you have either stage one or two disease. And then there are some parameters which will tell us if it's favorable or unfavorable. I don't want to go into too much detail with this because, you know, there <laughs> are different uh, criteria in Europe and U.S. and you know, there is lack of consensus even even among experts about what is the best approach. I think it's enough to say that there are two types of approaches. One is purely chemotherapy-based approach, and one is combined modality approach, which incorporates chemotherapy and radiation. No matter what approach you choose, the long-term outcomes are excellent in limited-stage disease. The overall survival is upwards of 90%. The debate is because we want to minimize therapy while maintaining these high levels of uh, efficacy. And so historically in Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma is exquisitely sensitive to radiotherapy, radiation. So in the 1960s, what was used was something called extended field radiation or mantle field radiation, which is kind of like wearing a suit of armor. So people were radiated from the top of their neck to almost their groin. And that led to, about 30, 40 years later, that led to a lot of serious side effects, uh, mainly uh, breast cancer and infertility and, and such. And actually heart disease was one of the other big things. Then they went on to um, involve field radiation, which is basically just radiating, instead of just radiating almost the whole uh, torso, you radiate one lymph node area or two lymph node areas. And the latest is something called involved site radiation, which is even smaller radiation fields, which was actually started fairly recently in the past few years. So because historically we use so much radiation and it led to so many side effects, the whole emphasis is to cut down on radiation. However, we also have to be cognizant that the radiation technology has evolved, so the current radiation may not be as harmful as what you might read online or what is quoted in literature. So if you talk to 10 different experts, everybody will have their own different opinion about how to treat uh, limited stage disease. But the bottom line is that you know the outcomes are excellent with limited stage disease. In terms of advanced stage disease, the standard of care is a combination of four drugs, chemotherapy drugs, A for ABVD, so A for adriamycin, B for bleomycin, uh, V for vinblastin, and D for carbazine. This has been studied and it has been in practice for almost 40 years now. It has a long track record of efficacy and safety. So that is what is most commonly used worldwide. The challengers are this in more intense regimen called BACOP, which is B-E-A-C-O-P-P, -P, so seven drugs. And then now, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, it, the, another challenger is a regimen called AAVD, where basically bleomycin has been replaced with another 
monoclonal antibody called brentaximab. Again, we are able to provide complete remission to three out of four, about 70 to 80% patients just with six cycles of ABVD. The good news about Hodgkin lymphoma is even in those people who relapse or who don't get a response after this, there are still pretty good salvage regimens uh, which are able to salvage half of these patients. The current challenge in the field is basically how to give good results to people who do not respond to the first and second line of treatments. And also the challenge is elderly Hodgkin lymphoma where you know they're not able to tolerate all these treatments. When would a patient be considered for immunotherapy or stem cell transplant? So that's a great question. The standard of care right now is that if a patient relapses after frontline therapy, be it ABVD or something else, they basically undergo something called high-dose chemotherapy followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. So just to remind the listeners that, you know, there are two types of transplant. One is an autologous stem cell transplant, which is basically a very fancy way of giving high-dose chemotherapy. So what happens is that the second time around when we are treating Hodgkin lymphoma, what is done is that very high doses of chemotherapy are given to the patient. They do a good job in killing the cancer, but they have the potential to wipe out the patient's immune system. So to get around it, what is done is that we actually do a stem cell harvest, basically make a copy of the immune system, and we keep it in the freezer. And then we give the high-dose chemotherapy to the patient, and then we give them their immune system back to salvage them. Typically, the new immune system is kind of like planting seeds in the soil. So it takes about two to three weeks to grow up and actually mature into, into a functional immune system. So they are at more risk for infection during that time. So either they have to stay in the hospital or very close to the hospital and be under close monitoring to prevent any other bad infections from happening during that time. Having said that, an autologous stem cell transplant is very well tolerated and at good centers where they do it on a regular basis, the outcomes are excellent. The chances that something will go wrong is less than 1%. Now, the other kind of transplant is something called an allogeneic stem cell transplant, which is basically the patient gets somebody else's immune system or somebody else's stem cells after their own immune system has been wiped out by some combination of chemotherapy or chemotherapy and radiation. Now, that is a more risky venture because uh, there is a risk of graft-versus-host disease, both in the short term and the long term. And um, because of that, the chances that something will go wrong is 20 to 30 percent, even at the best centers. So for Hodgkin lymphoma, what is recommended is if, if they do relapse, then an autologous stem cell transplant is recommended uh, for consolidation in that setting. Allogeneic stem cell transplant is done in some settings, especially if the patient has had multiple relapses or if they have become chemorefractory, but that is done very, very, very infrequently, at least nowadays, now that we have immunotherapy. Now, coming to immunotherapy, we do have two drugs which are FDA-approved for Hodgkin lymphoma, both with slightly different indications, but they're pretty much, they can be used interchangeably, pembrolizumab and nivolumab. In children, uh, nivolumab has not been studied, so pembrolizumab is the only one which uh, can be used. However, for adults, both can be used. Currently, 
the place where these are used are if a patient has has had ABBD, then relapsed, then got a salvage regimen, and then got a transplant, and then relapsed, then the first thing that is done is brentuximab, and then if a patient relapses or is resistant to brentuximab, then in the third line, either of the checkpoint inhibitors can be used. The other place where they can be used is if the patient is transplant ineligible, meaning their performance status is not good enough for a transplant, then they can go on to receive immunotherapy after they have tried all the other options. Both the checkpoint inhibitors are being studied in a lot of clinical trials because the thought is, well, if they work so well, even in advanced advanced Hodgkin lymphoma or like after the patient has seen so many different lines of therapy, why not move this effective therapy forward to give our patients the best outcome? Especially, you know, because I'd mentioned that chemotherapy has long-term outcomes and these people are really young. So to give them, so kind of to give them a chemotherapy-free treatment regimen, what is being done is studies are being done to combine brentuximab and nivolumab to see what that will do, especially in salvage settings. People don't necessarily have to get their treatment at big cancer centers. However, with so many advances happening, it is always recommended that they at least go for a second opinion to a big cancer center just to find out what are their options and what's on the horizon and what clinical trials might be good for them to enroll in. That's a perfect segue into my next question because I was going to ask, how soon does someone need to start treatment? I mean, for that person who wants to get a second opinion, wants to do their own research, what's the time frame for that? So there is no standard answer for that. Hodgkin lymphoma is, it falls in the category of aggressive lymphoma. So the sooner we start treatment, the better. However, it depends on how someone is presenting. For example, you know, somebody might have a lymph node that's been growing gradually for a few months. So when they come and they're diagnosed with lymphoma, it's not necessary to start treatment tomorrow. It's okay to wait a few weeks and go for your opinion and then start your treatment. Now, on the other hand, I had this lady who came to the ICU directly because she was having breathing trouble because she had a huge mass in her chest, which turned out to be Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, this is not a person I'm going to wait for a clinical trial. She was immediately started on treatment and, you know, she's doing well. So it's always on a case-to-case basis, but your doctor is your best guide, you know. It's just for you to ask that question to your doctor, do you think I should do this? And your doctor is going to guide you and tell you if we have time or not. And for those patients that can't take the pleomycin, what do you say to them? Is it okay to take it away? So that is also a very interesting question. So luckily we have a brentuximab, which is, you know, recently the Echelon 1 study data was presented, which really helps us answer the question if we take away bleomycin and replace it with something else, is there any harm in doing that? And the answer is no. In fact, the study, uh, which was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, showed us that if you do something called AVD with brentuximab versus the standard ABVD, you actually have a small improvement in your progression-free survival. So again, as I'd mentioned earlier, because ABVD has such a long track record, a small 5% uh, improvement is not 
making us jump to this new therapy right away. However, it is a great option for people who have COPD or lung issues where, you know, we would be wary of giving bleomycin. For these people, replacing bleomycin with brentuximab is definitely a great idea. There was a trial where bleomycin was just omitted and people got AVD, and those patients did not do as well as when they got some amount of bleomycin. Typically, though, uh, what we have been doing is, as standard of care, recognizing that bleomycin has a small risk of causing lung toxicity. Based on a study that was published in 2016, what the community is doing, and it's also part of the NCCN guidelines, is that we do something called a pet-adapted strategy. So let's say I see a a person who has just been diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma. They get a PET CT at baseline, and then we start them on ABVD. Then they get a PET scan after two cycles of ABVD. And if the PET scan is completely negative, the study showed that we can safely omit bleomycin from the next four cycles without any major loss in efficacy. So that's what we've been doing is that we give bleomycin for the first two rounds and then we drop it from the regimen and give ABD. And now we have brentuximab to replace it with if we really think it's a high-risk patient and absolutely they need, AVD is not going to be enough, then you know they would just start with AVD brentuximab right from the beginning. It's great to have options. When I started at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society 10 years ago, uh, we didn't have as many options for Hodgkin lymphoma. So absolutely, absolutely. It's a great time to be a lymphoma doctor. It is getting challenging to keep up with all the new data and new information, but that's our job. So it's a great time. It's a very exciting time. I'm actually currently in Orlando for NCCN's annual conference. And there was a patient that I was talking to earlier today, and she was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma. She's currently in, in remission. And she was saying how she went to a number of dermatologists who told her that she had an extreme case of psoriasis, rosacea, all these things. One of the questions she had for me was, why is it that so many doctors that I went to, now they were dermatologists because it was something that presented on her skin, which we know about with the CTCL and things Mm -hmm. like that. But she was saying, why is it that doctors, that they're not thinking of Hodgkin's lymphoma when it comes to this type of symptom and then she just you know she mentioned you know you would think it's something that's at least on the radar that if I go back to you you then you know pursue that so are you finding that of course they're not within the oncology or hematology field but are you finding that the patients that come to you were misdiagnosed many times by their in this case dermatologists Rarely the rash is that severe, but what I hear from my patients most often is that they've had it, you know, they thought it's something they ate or some sort of allergy. They've not really gone to a dermatologist. I mean, to put things in perspective, Hodgkin lymphoma is not that common. There are about 8,000 patients who are diagnosed every year. So it is a very small subset compared to all the patients who go to dermatologists with rashes. So it is possible that it is missed in many cases. Typically what happens is that the patient themselves notice a lymph node popping up in their neck, and that's when the suspicion of Hodgkin's lymphoma arises. But, you know, there's no classical pattern of rash that is seen with Hodgkin lymphoma, so that's why probably it's not on the radar for the dermatologists in general. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard that before. 
I've just heard that some patients, when they drink alcohol, they get either a rash or feel uncomfortable. That is correct. So classically, if you go to old medicine textbooks, that's what is written, that basically when patients drink alcohol, their lymph nodes start throbbing. Whichever lymph nodes have lymphoma, they start throbbing. I have actually not had any patients tell me that. I don't know if they're not drinking enough alcohol or, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I know that you touched upon this, but long-term and late effects because... We do have Mm -hmm. people that are young adults when they were diagnosed and they're living longer. And then even 20 years after, uh, we're finding Mm -hmm. that um, people are getting diagnosed with second cancers and they may not have been aware that they needed to be monitored um, because they were cured. So we're talking a lot about monitoring and what survivors need to know. Um, to tell their doctors when they go for annual physicals um, to watch out for because they have a history of Hodgkin lymphoma. Is there certain things that you tell your patients to that they need monitoring for, especially since patients who've been in remission or cured may not be seeing an oncologist, hematologist? Definitely. And, you know, um, survivorship is a fairly recent field and it is evolving. There are four components that we stress on whenever we talk to a person who has recently finished therapy and kind of we lay out the roadmap about what they should be getting screened for or what they should look out for. So the first important thing is we need, of course, to continue surveillance to make sure that the lymphoma doesn't come back. So that's basically the purview of the treating oncologist is, you know, initially we see them every three months and then we space out the visits. In terms of doing repeat scans, usually CAT scans are done um, a couple of times in the first five years. And then it's just basically physical exam and an annual blood test. And then after 10 years, you know, it's more tailored. Sometimes people go back to their primary care doctor or they continue with a dedicated survivorship clinic. The second thing that survivors have to be monitored for are late effects of the treatment. And so it depends on what treatment they received. The adriamycin, which is a very key component of chemotherapy, ABVD, can cause cardiac problems. So what is recommended is that the patients are counseled on cardiovascular risk and a healthy lifestyle and also are assessed for any symptoms of heart disease. The other thing is whether they got radiation because, you know, radiotherapy to the thorax puts them at risk for lung cancer. Also, if the patient's got radiation to the thorax, it can lead to breast cancer. So the standard recommendation is that patients start annual breast cancer screening 8 to 10 years after treatment or at the age of 40, whatever comes first. If they got radiation when they were younger, when they were between 10 and 30 years of age, then it is recommended that in addition to a mammogram, they also get an MRI of their breasts. Also, if they got radiation into the neck, then they should be monitored for thyroid problems with thyroid function tests. If they had uh, a bone marrow transplant, then there are a couple of more things. They need an annual skin assessment. They need dental assessment and also assessment for cataracts on an annual basis. 
And, you know, uh, people who got transplant or BACOP are also at risk for infertility. So continued discussion about that should be done. Now, these patients, they are also at risk for, you know, just age-related or other cancers, as is the general population. And so, you know, having one cancer doesn't exclude them from having just another cancer remotely, unfortunately. So they need to, women need to undergo cervical cancer screening with pap smears, colorectal cancer screening, uh, same as general population after 50 years of age, and then prostate cancer screening, and just general lifestyle changes and leading a healthy lifestyle, basically advice regarding that. So tobacco cessation, diet and weight management, you know, exercise a few times a week, and keeping up with their vaccinations. And then lastly, and that is the most ignored part of taking care of survivors, is talking about their psychosocial health. So distress screening, body image, and relationship issues. And, you know, studies have shown that uh, cancer survivors have a harder time finding jobs, keeping jobs. So talking about their employment status and financial stressors and to see if we can provide any help is very important. So... There are different models to achieve that, and there is no right answer. For example, some people go back to their primary care doctors with what is called a survivorship care plan, which should basically be generated after uh, a person completes treatment for their cancer. And that survivorship care plan is basically a roadmap of how the primary care doctor would manage this patient. Some cancer centers have a dedicated survivorship clinic where patients are transitioned to. And some cancer centers, they have they do survivorship, but they do it under the auspices of the parent clinic, meaning the same oncologist who took care of the patient. So uh, no matter how these uh, components are addressed, it's just important that we keep talking about these issues for many, many years with uh, these people. Doctor, earlier you mentioned clinical trials uh, briefly. And for those listening, clinical trials are carefully controlled research studies that are done to get a closer look at promising new treatments or procedures. Now, at the LLSB, it's it's a new resource. We have the CTSC, which is the Clinical Trial Support Center. And what that is, is patients can call and work one-on-one with an LLS clinical trial specialist who then assists them throughout the entire clinical trial process. For those diagnosed with the Hodgkin lymphoma, are there any promising clinical trials out there that they can consider or speak with their doctors about? The important clinical trials are basically those combining brentuximab and the checkpoint inhibitors in various settings to see if we can achieve a chemotherapy-free treatment plan. And this is being done basically in the relapse refractory setting for now. There are other trials, but not every trial is available in every place. So the best resource is to go to either the clinicaltrials.gov website or, you know, your new LLS resource and look up whatever is available in the area and to see what might be beneficial for the particular patient. Thank you. And that's the thing. I think that uh, Lizette and I, we've been on an episode about clinical trials specifically, and we're trying to kind of debunk the junk when it comes to clinical trials. We, we want people to know that that it's not just, you know, the last resort. We want them to know that it's a very viable option for those, you know, diagnosed with blood cancer and seeking a real treatment. It's, a, it's very much a real treatment. And so it's always nice to speak with a doctor. And this resource is so great because it offers patients the opportunity to get those questions answered. 
um, about clinical trials as well as pursue that journey with somebody who's knowledgeable about it. Absolutely, I agree with you. It's kind of like, you know, I think um, I've heard many patients tell me, you know, I don't want to be a guinea pig. That is not the philosophy of clinical trials. Uh, you know, there is a small risk that, you know, the new therapy which is studied might not be beneficial. However, it is kind of like getting opportunity to go to a pre-sale, meaning you are going to be the first person to try the therapy of the future. Most of the medications before they are studied in a trial have already been in development for at least five to 10 years. They have undergone rigorous experiments in the lab and also in unfortunately a lot of different types of animals to make sure that they are safe for humans. And also it depends on what phase of clinical trial it is. Typically, the bigger clinical trials are either phase two or phase three. And those are trials where safety has, I wouldn't say it's been completely established, but pretty much, uh, you know, scientists have worked really hard to ensure as much as they can that the doses are safe at least. And these trials are done basically more to, to get more data on safety and basically to see if they are better than standard of care. In cancer, there are hardly any trials anymore which are placebo-controlled, meaning, you know, if you got randomized to the arm which does not get the effective treatment, the new treatment doesn't mean that you're not going to get effective treatment. Most trials are basically comparing standard treatment versus something that is thought is more promising. So what I usually tell my patients is that, you know, there's no harm to it. You either may get the standard of care or you may get something better which you may or may not benefit from, but it's a chance. And, you know, the thing which comes with clinical trials is that you just get a little more extra support and care from the clinical trial team, and you just have more advocates for you. So it's always a good idea to ask for clinical studies. Is there any other information you'd like to share with us? I think we could also talk about the role of brentuximab in other settings, meaning we've talked about the Echelon 1 study where actually it was just approved day before yesterday. Brentuximab was approved by the FDA for frontline therapy of Hodgkin lymphoma. But traditionally, the other indications where brentuximab is typically used is, one, if the first indication was if a patient relapses after an autologous stem cell transplant. Brentuximab actually gave very good response rates of about 80%. So that was where it was used first. And then there was another big study called the Ethera study where um, Brentuximab was studied for maintenance, meaning in those high-risk patients who relapsed and got a transplant, Brentuximab was uh, given for a year to kind of deepen the response and prolong the remission, and it was better than placebo. This was one of the rare instances where the trial was placebo-controlled. So brentuximab did have a better progression-free survival, so that is the other approval for brentuximab is if a patient relapses within one year of getting frontline therapy or has extranodal disease or is not in a complete remission when they go for their transplant or requires more than one salvage therapy, they need brentuximab for, as maintenance. And um, lately, people have been using brentuximab even before transplant as their salvage regimen, whereas typically the salvage regimen used to be high-dose chemotherapy, and there are very interesting names for that, like ICE. Brentuximab was an alternative for patients who could not tolerate ICE. 
So these are the other places other than frontline where brentuximab is used. And that is also one of the questions that the community has is, and why we don't want to jump to brentuximab frontline is, well, we have a very nice solid plan where we cure three out of four patients with ABVD, and then they relapse, and then we do transplant. And then, God forbid, if they relapse again, we do brentuximab. But if we move brentuximab to frontline, then we may not have much to use later. And we don't know how that's going to affect the whole treatment paradigm. So that's where brentuximab is at this time in Hodgkin lymphoma. There's still a lot to find out. But yes, that uh, designation that was approved, that's great to hear. Now, is there any other, I mean, along with, you know, the resources that the LLS has, is there any other organization or place that we may not know about that would be a great resource for Hodgkin lymphoma patients? No, I typically, you know, I refer to the LLS handouts. Sometimes I go to Lymphoma Research Foundation or NCCN, or actually there there's a foundation in the UK which has some good handouts, but my first go-to is Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And that is probably one of the only places which has a good handout on survivorship too. There mm-hmm. is one more thing I do want to share with the listeners and kind of advice, especially our young adults, is that the success of treatment for Hodgkin lymphoma is to deliver the right doses, the optimal doses at the right time, meaning not having any delays in therapy. So I know, and I've had some patients who have been very busy with school or their social lives, and you know, once they start feeling better, it just seems like there are so many other things to do and this is not as much a priority, but it is. And, you know, you can really compromise chances of success if, you know, there are any delays in treatment. So our young adults and our adolescents have to make it a point to make sure that, you know, they follow all the guidelines that the oncologists give and be done with the therapy at the right time and take good care of themselves. And do you find it mostly young adults have more issues with adherence to therapy? As long as people are adolescents, you know, they come with their parents and parents take care of bringing them to appointments, they can't drive, that kind of thing. But once they're young adults, they might be going to school in another city. And like I've had some patients who just came back to visit for summer break and their parents brought them to me and they started treatment and now they want to go back and things like that. And I understand living their life is important and they might have, you know, relationships and such. However, um, this is a very highly curable malignancy, uh, which is not something we can say for all cancers. So there is a good shot at getting rid of this and we should do our best to give it our best shot. Well said. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Torka, for joining us on this episode and sharing such great information about Hodgkin's lymphoma with our listeners. You're welcome. For those listening who would like to read more information about Hodgkin lymphoma or lymphoma overall, as well as medication adherence, please visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets. We also encourage you to call an LLS information specialist at 1-800-955-4572 or by emailing infocenter at lls.org. For other support resources, please visit www.lls.org 
forward slash support. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.